0: Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Oh, I think the first service had a better response than that. How are you guys doing this morning? Uh, my name is Andy Notice. I'm the family pastor here. Uh, we were telling a joke beforehand. Uh, my grandfather used to be a, a preacher in a black church in the South, and they'd introduce him as Dr. Reverend Bishop Notice. You can just call me Andy. That's fine. <laughs> and so, um, I'm happy to be with you here today. Usually I'm on the other side of the church uh, with the kids or with the youth, uh, but today I get to unpack the scriptures and we get to dive into uh, the series on believe with you here today. Um, I recently uh, became a dad for the third time. I have a little uh, baby Coco who's eight months old. Uh, She's cute and she's adorable. And so, uh, oh, thank you. That's nice. Um, um, We have this routine that we developed uh, over the evenings. I come home, I give her a bath, I get that all ready, put her in her sleep sack and such, then my wife feeds her. Uh, and then we put her down, uh, and then we uh, offer our offerings and our sacrifices to hope that she sleeps through the night. Uh, And then after that, we, um, uh, after we're done, my wife and I have our own routine. Uh, We get ourselves ready, we go downstairs, and we're ready for, like, Netflix and chill. (laughs) Why is that funny? Uh, I think I mentioned that I have a baby, so when I say Netflix and chill, I really mean watch Netflix and see who falls asleep first. That's what we're doing. And so we're down there, and uh, we watch these episodes, and our goal is to see how many episodes we can watch at a time. And if you're watching streaming, uh, they have this thing where, uh, when you get to the end of the episode, there's this box that appears as the credits are rolling out. And the box, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a click on that to get to the next episode faster. And my wife is like, every time that box up, she's like, click it, click it, click it, come on, I, I hate the music. She hates the outro music. She wants to click it as fast as she can. Me, on the other hand, I'm looking because sometimes in that box, it has the description of the next episode. And I wanna, I'm looking, I'm saying, okay, this is going to happen next. She's like, what are you doing? You're going to ruin it. You, you're jumping ahead. You're going to ruin the next episode. But for me, I love it because when I get that synopsis, I get an idea of what's coming next. And as I'm watching the episode, I'm trying to figure out how are they going to get to that point. So today, as I begin, I want to give you guys a synopsis of what's to come. Now, if you want to, you guys can take notes from here. But if not, you guys can cover your eyes, cover your ears, uh, and then just wait and be surprised by the end. Okay? So, our time today together, I have one simple goal. I'm hoping that we can redefine success so that it only means obedience to Jesus that is rooted in love, that is informed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping that we can redefine success, our definition of success, so it only means obedience to Jesus that is rooted in love, that is informed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm competitive, and so this idea of success, I know what success is. Success is winning, it's not losing. You wanna get a win, you wanna get a W, you don't wanna hold no L's, right? And so um, when I talk about success, we have this idea of winning and losing in all areas of our life. It could be family, it could be work, it could be education, whatever it is, there's a winner and there's a loser. But when I talk about success this morning, I want to talk about something different. Although I think this application could apply to these different areas of our life, when I talk about success, I'm talking about spiritual success. What does it mean to be spiritually successful in terms of a relationship of Jesus? Understanding who God is, who he's called us to be, how he's empowered us, and how we're supposed to use that to affect the world around us and advancing his kingdom. Now, have you ever had a moment in your life that redefines definitions for you? before you thought one thing, and this is the way that the world was, and then something happened, and after that, everything changed. It redefined stuff for you. I had one of those moments. And this happened to me while I was standing on a bridge, overlooking a river, I was on the outskirts of Montreal, I had a coffee in my hand, and I was thinking about my life and my future. Now, as I say that, I realized that you may think that I was going to jump off the bridge. There's no jumping here. There is no jumping. I was asked to go there so I could uh, find a space where I could meet and listen to God. And that's the space that I found, this bridge uh, overlooking this river on the outskirts of Montreal, coffee in my hand, contemplating my life and my future. And what I got from God at that moment redefined success, redefined everything for me in that moment. So we're in this series called Believe, A Journey Through the Book of John, and today we're going to be focusing on John 14, uh, verses 15 uh, to 30. Uh, And I'm going to read that in a moment, but before I do that, is it okay if I pray? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I want to thank you that you never left us alone, but you sent us an advocate. And as we were singing in the song earlier today that the worship team led us, you were talking that your presence is an open door. And that we want you like never before. And I pray that we would open the door this morning and you'd join us here. Allow us to understand what it means to love and obey your commands. Allow us to understand what it means to look for you and receive and recognize your influence in our life. And I pray that we'd be able to redefine success according to your definition this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. So, uh, John chapter 14, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the the seat back in front of you. Uh, If you have digital, a phone or a tablet, we also have free Wi-Fi here, so you can uh, uh, look at it that way. So, John 14, uh, I'm only going to read the first three verses, 15 to 18, uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But here's John 14. If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Now, the part that I want to focus on is verse 15, if you love me, obey my commands. And I can do that with this passage because if you continue to look down the passage, this idea or this theme is repeated over and over again. In verse 15, again, if you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. verse 23, uh, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. In verse 24, anyone who does not love me will obey my teaching, won't obey my teaching. Now, just so we're clear here a little Cheater's note, if you're ever reading a portion of Scripture and you see something or a concept that's repeated over and over and over again, it's probably because it's important, right? And I see Jesus is doing here because he knows that sometimes we're a little slow on the uptake and we'll just skim over it and he wants to make sure that we get to this point. And so I think as we go through this Scripture and look at this passage, the idea that he wants to uh, focus on, what he wants to teach us, is uh, encapsulated in those seven words. If you love me... Obey my commandments. So I literally want to go through that word for word and see what that means. So the first word that we have there is if. Now, just for some context here, uh, this is uh, the 14th chapter in John. The up chapter 12 to 14, uh, they're in the upper, they're in this room, they're having uh, a meal together. Um, this is the Last Supper, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking to them. And at this point in the passage, he says, "If you love me." Why does he use the word if? He's speaking to the disciples. These are the guys who've been with him for about three years, right? They've seen all the stuff. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the healings. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him speak to nature and control it. They've seen him teach to thousands of people and feed thousands of people. They've seen him debate the Pharisees and the religious leaders and how that's turned out. They've even seen the voice of God split the heavens, And speak to who he is as the son of God. They've seen all this. But yet, he's turning to them and says, if you love me. Is it possible to be a follower of Jesus and not love him? Is it possible to be a disciple and not love him? I think there are a whole host of reasons that don't include love while people may or may not be following Jesus. One of them could be opportunity. You hear about the story of Judas later on. He was looking for opportunity. It didn't end work out well for him in the end. Another reason why people may follow is because of guilt. I'm doing this to assuage my guilt and my shame, and this is how I'm supposed to be better is by doing this. Another reason why I think people follow Jesus is for fear. Uh, Pastor Dave last week had a great story about an acquaintance who was trying to get somebody to follow Jesus or understand the gospel by fearing them into it, which never works. Another reason, I think, is tradition. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and that's what you've always done. Your parents and your grandparents and your grandparents is just what you do. We just follow Jesus. Another reason is duty. I'm not sure why I'm doing this, but I'm going to do this because it's what should be done. I think those are bad reasons for following Jesus. Now, you be, may be here this morning and you may not be a follower of Jesus. You may not have decided to follow him. You may not believe in church. You may be just checking this out for the first time but if you were to ask yourself why you don't follow Jesus, would you also have this list apply to you? Opportunity, you think it's just opportunistic, they're just trying to get something from you. you think maybe it's guilt. I don't, I like all this guilt and shame thing and sin and whatever, I don't want anything to do with that. Or maybe it's fear. You don't want to be feared into this, escape from hell and get to heaven, that's not for you. Maybe you don't because of tradition. Maybe you grew up in an, an uh, agnostic or an atheistic home and you just never believed. Either way, these are not good motivations to either follow or not follow Jesus. There is one that is good, and it comes up in the next few words. If you love me. Love should be that motivation for why we are following him. So, love, what does this word love mean? It means a lot of things. Uh, If I was teaching my youth, I would get them to get into groups and come up with a definition of love and then we share it and we'd all laugh, but we don't have time for that this morning. But um, I used to be a young adult pastor, and uh, one of my favorite talks was this talk on dating and relationships. It used to be maybe three weeks, but ended up being like six or seven because there's so much issues with young adults and dating. It was hilarious. And so uh, this idea of uh, love, uh, what I would do for the first session is I would show that season's premiere trailer for either The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Same thing, doesn't matter, different bikinis, it's all the same. And I'd show that clip, because in that clip, you're guaranteed to get something. You're going to get someone coming out of limos being weird and crazy. You're going to get a rose ceremony. You're going to get people who are dressed up, too much alcohol. You're going to get all these amazing locations all over the world. You're going to get one-on-one dates, two-on-two, nine-on-eleven dates, whatever it is. You're going to get all this stuff. And at some point, you're going to get somebody who says, man, this is the best place to fall in love. Or someone's going to say, hey, I think I'm falling in love with this person. Or if you're lucky, you're going to get someone say, I'm falling in love with two people at the same time. (laughs) And I look at this, and I'm like, okay, this is supposed to be this culture's idea of what the ultimate dating experience is leading into marriage. Why is it that we always associate something as important as love to falling? What do those two things have in common? I'm not sure about you, but every time I've ever fallen down, it's been a bad thing. You know, falling up the stairs, falling off my bike, whatever it is, falling is bad. I don't understand that. Like, if I were to come here at the edge of the stage and fall off, no one would be like, yeah, Andy, that's awesome, do it again. I hope not, at least. (laughs) The last time I fell down, it was because I had the flu, and I was sick, and I passed out, and I fell, and luckily my wife was there who caught me, which is an act of love, I think, Um, and I'm glad she's actually six feet tall because she actually could catch me which is awesome. But falling is always bad. And I'm trying to figure out where did this idea come from? So I did some research, some, some digging, and this idea, this phrase, falling in love, uh, it has its roots. It's like in the romantic languages. But back in the day, it was always used as a warning. Don't fall in love with that person or be careful of falling in love because they understood that falling is bad. Now, I'm not sure about you, but every time I fall down, I kind of get back up, dust myself off, and kind of like walk around, make sure no one saw that, what was going on, right? That's what we do when we fall. We pick ourselves up and move again. Now, what would happen, this flimsy definition of love? Because falling, falling, it describes something that's uncontrollable. It describes something that is unintentional. It's an accident. What would happen if God used that definition for how he described how he loved us? For example, let's reimagine John 3.16. For God so fell in love with the world that Jesus fell out of heaven into a manger and realized, this is nasty, I'm going to clean myself up and go back to heaven, right? (laughs) That doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for God. I think there's a better definition of what love is, and I think it's important that we have a proper definition of love. One of my favorite definitions of love comes from a psychologist, Scott Peck. Uh, In his book, The World That's Traveled. And uh, I'm gonna show the definition in a second, but I just wanna give you a little uh, context for how he got to the definition. It's kind of the preamble. He says this Everyone in our culture desires to some extent to be loving, yet many are not in fact loving. I therefore conclude that the desire to love is not itself love. Love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely both an intention. And an action. Will also implies choice. We, don't, not, we do not have to love. We choose to love. No matter how much we may think we are loving, if we are not in fact loving, it is because we have chosen not to love. And then he comes up with this uh, succinct definition, which I love. He says, I define love thus. The will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Love is an action. It's not falling. It's not an accident. It's not something that happens out of your control. It is an action. It is a choice. I do a lot of weddings and and marriage counseling, and when I'm getting people to put their ceremonies together, I talk about this concept. I hope that you're not here by accident, but that you chose to be here to marry this person, to... Confess your love to them. Love is an action. I think if we're going to understand this passage, we have to redefine the word love. It can't be an accident. It can't be out of our control. If it's going to make a difference in our lives, we have to understand that it is a choice. It is the will. We are extending ourselves for a purpose. This idea of love being action answers the question, if, if you love me there's a proper way to define the word love. Love is an action. If you love me, the next word we have is obey. So, I'm standing on this bridge, overlooking this river on the outskirts of Montreal. I have a coffee in my hand, contemplating my life and my future. Again, no jumping. I'm there as an act of obedience. Uh, you see, uh, previously, um, uh, I was working uh, at a church, and I had switched positions and taking on a new role, and for certain reasons, the role got canceled, and my job uh, got let go. And uh, this was a couple months earlier, and I'm trying to figure out, what am I going to do now? I wasn't working. My, Chris, my Christine, my wife at the time, wasn't working. And we're trying to figure out, what are we going to do when we feel God calling us to go to this conference, uh, to go to this event, to, be part, part, to partake in this? And so we go, we do it. It costs us something. Uh, There's a sacrifice involved with it. But we go anyways, and, and act of obedience, I end up on this bridge overlooking this river, with the coffee in my hand, and the outskirts of Montreal, contemplating my life and my future. Now I think we understand this idea of obedience. We know what it means to be obedient, and we know what it means to be disobedient. If you have a dog, more likely than not, you understand obedience. If you have a cat, you probably understand disobedience. Cats don't really obey anybody. Uh, I got two stories that I want to share that kind of highlight this idea of obedience. Uh, So as I mentioned before, my daughter, Coco, she's uh, eight months old. Uh, She was breastfed for most of her life. And the last couple months, we've been giving her food, like solid mushed up, like peas and yams and carrots and stuff like that. Yummy, yummy, yummy stuff. And so uh, I get to feed her now, right? And so I'm going in, and she's sitting down. She's in her table. She's got her armor on to protect her and protect our home. And I I go, and I give her the carrots, and I go in, and she sees it coming, and she's like, yeah. And the first thing she does, she grabs it, and she goes, she mouths down on the spoon. I I can't pull it back fast enough because she's fast and she's strong, like her dad. Uh, And so I do this. And it happens for days. It happens for weeks. And it's kind of cute in the beginning. You know, oh, look at her. She's teething. She's getting all this stuff. But then after a while, my OCD kicks in. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way to do this because she's getting all this stuff in her hair, on her tray, on her seat. She's getting it on the ceiling and on the floor. She's getting it on the basement and it's on the sidewalk. It's getting everywhere right? I'm like, there's got to be a better way. And I'm like, I think, I think I can teach her how to be obedient when it comes to feeding, to not use her hands. I'm like, you know what? I have a degree in psychology. I understand classical conditioning. I think we can do this. So the next time we go in, it's time to feed her, right? She puts her in her chair. She's in her hand. She's got all the stuff on. And I go in with a spoon. And as she's going to grab it, I'm like, no hands. And she goes to grab it and I pull it away. And she's like, mm. she thinks it's a game, right? Little does she know. So I go again with the spoon, and I go to give it to her. She's going to grab it, and I'm like, no hands. She goes to grab it, and I pull it away. Third time, I go in, and I'm like, I go through it. She looks at it, she sees the hands, and I'm like, no hands. She's like, I don't think I understand what you're saying to me, but I think I should leave my hands where they are. And I put it in her mouth, and her hands stay away. I have a picture of, of what that looks like. I think I have a picture. <sighs> Notice the placement of her hands on the side. There's no movement whatsoever. She's doing the right, and the spoon is in her mouth, and there is no carrots anywhere. It's absolutely awesome. I got it on my first try. This is awesome. Uh, if any of you would like, I'll be holding a seminar upstairs in the hub: how to cleanly feed your children afterwards. You can register with Carrie at the welcome desk. It's a free seminar. It's going to be awesome. It's great. But it got me thinking as I'm preparing for this: if my eight-month-old who doesn't really understand language, can be obedient to her father in something as simple as feeding. How much more should we be obedient to our Heavenly Father in something as important as how we follow him and how we live our lives? She doesn't understand language, but she can get this pretty simply. Shouldn't it be just as easy for us to get what it means to follow him, to follow our Heavenly Father? The second story that I have uh, is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. It's Luke chapter 18. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Now, this is a guy who was a religious leader. He's coming up to Jesus, and he's asking him a question. Good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus answers him. He gives him five of the Ten Commandments. And dude's like, you know what? I got this. No problem. I've been doing that since I was born. No problem. And then Jesus gives him another commandment. He says to him in verse 22, when Jesus heard his answer, he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The same story in Matthew has an ending that's a little bit different and describes his response to that. In verse 22, it says, When the young man heard these words, he went away sad, for he had many riches. Now, we have a religious leader, someone who you think should understand what it means to have eternal life or eternity, coming to Jesus, I think authentically, and saying, how must I get eternal life? Jesus gives him a command, and he can't do it. He can't obey Jesus because he's obeying himself. He thinks riches are going to get him eternal life, are going to give him life, but that's not the case. What Jesus wants to tell us here is that obedience leads to life. Obedience leads to eternal life. If you love me, obey. We can't obey ourselves and obey Jesus at the same time. We have to make a choice. We think that obeying ourselves, doing what we want, will give us life. We think that obeying him is going to restrict us. It's going to make us have no fun. It's going to take away all the good things. But this obedience will actually bring us life. This obedience actually is good. This obedience actually leads to eternity. Obedience leads to life. If you love me, obey my commands. Now, what commands are we talking about? Good question. Glad you asked that. So there's a couple things that I want to say when it comes to uh, these commands. Uh, The first thing is, um, if you look in the Old Testament, the first five books, uh, the Talmud, you'll find 611 laws, decrees, statutes, and commands that were given. Uh, you go into the New Testament and you talk about all the things that Jesus said, all of his teachings, and you add on top of that all the teachings of the disciples and the books to the churches. There's a lot of things that we're supposed to be commanded to do. A lot of things that we're supposed to obey. How do you keep it all together? How do you keep it all on track? Well, I'm glad uh, that Jesus actually gave us a shortcut to all of this. And the shortcut is found in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, again, another religious leader comes up to him, asking him questions. And he says this, teacher... Which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 40, this is the the thing. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two things. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. If you love me, obey my commands. We can just start there. Loving God with everything that we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Could you imagine if every one of us in this room, all the believers in the world simply did that? Forget everything else. If all that we ever did was to love God with everything that we have and love our neighbors, anyone that we come into contact with as ourselves, this would radically change the world. It would never be the same just by following this one command. The second thing uh, that I want to mention is, um, I'm not sure if you realize this, but the the New Testament in some Bibles, it comes color-coded. The first Five, four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The words in Jesus are in red. It's pre-highlighted, right? And if you want another way to understand this idea of commands, you could just open the Gospels and just read the red stuff, you know? Um, I was a, uh, when I was young and zealous, I had it in my mind, um, I was going to read the Bible cover to cover every year. And I did this year after year after year. I did this for, I think, eight or nine years in a row and I was doing it, and I was being obedient to these commands, but I wasn't doing it for the right reason. I was doing it because one day I was going to be on stage, and I was going to be preaching to a group of people, and I was going to say, guess what? I have read my Bible every year for nine years in a row, and they were going to cheer, and there was going to be streamers falling from the sky, and it was going to be awesome. Scotty, you got the streamers? No? No. No. And that was what I was doing, but I was being obedient for the wrong reasons. It was pride. It was all this stuff. And so what I developed was a different way to read the Bible. Uh, It's more like a three- or four-year reading plan. I basically take a small portion, no more than a chapter, and I read that, and I try to figure out what is it that's being told to me here? What are the commandments? And how can I take just one thing? How can I be obedient with just one thing today or this week or this month? And it helps to put commands in a different perspective. It gives you a more of a bite-sized chunk, something that's easier to handle. The third thing that I want to say, if you love me, obey my commands, is that um, I think this part, this next part that we're going to talk about, is the most important. I think it's critical. I think if you don't get this, it makes uh, loving and obedience a lot difficult and a lot harder. But I think if you actually get this and if you understand it, Uh, loving God and being obedient to his commands could be as simple as an eight-month-old eating mushy carrots. And here's the thing. In verse 16 it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Um Now, this idea of another advocate, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The word "their advocate, is translated paraclete. Uh, And the whole idea of paraclete, it's a big word. It's got a lot of meanings and nuances uh, throughout um, the scriptures. Uh, But there's two main things that it talks about. First of all, it talks about the roles of this paraclete. It's someone who is teaching. It's someone who bears witness. It is someone who convinces of sin. It's someone who guides us into all truth. And then in other places, it talks about the character of this paraclete. It's someone who is a counselor, someone who is a strengthener, someone who is a standby, a comforter, a helper, an intercessor. Now, when I think of somebody who can actually fulfill that job description, someone who has those roles and someone who has those characters, only one person comes to mind. It's Jesus. That's who he, who he is. That's what he did. But then you look at verse 17, sorry 16, and it says, this is Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate. Jesus is the first advocate, and He's going to give us another advocate. And what I want to say, and the point that I want you to get this morning, is that when it comes to being obedient to Jesus and to following His commands, Jesus is just as important as the Holy Spirit, He's the other advocate. Now I realize that when we look at that, I come from a Pentecostal background, so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about a whole bunch of different things, you know, like uh, people giving words and manifestations of the Spirit, all the stuff that's coming in here, right? Then I realize that some people here uh, may be aware of that. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing about the Holy Spirit, or have you had a bad experience in the past? Uh, What I like about this passage here uh, is, specifically verses 17 and 26, is that Jesus gives us a way by which we can interact with the Holy Spirit in a way that is actually beneficial for everybody. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to be scared about it. It's kind of this balance and check these things that work together. In verse 17 he says, the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. And in verse 26 it says, uh, the advocate, uh, the Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I said. So we have the Holy Spirit teaching, reminding, and the words of Jesus. And I think those things, those three things work together where we can be honest and we can trust what the Spirit is speaking to us. It's not just someone saying, I have a word for you, and that's it, and we run off. We can check that word against truth. We can check that word against what Jesus said. We don't have to be apprehensive anymore. We can engage with the Spirit in a way that he teaches us, he, we have his truth, and that he reminds us of what Jesus said. All these things working together gives us comfort when it talks about what it means to listen to this Holy Spirit. The fourth thing that I want to talk about is um, not knowing. In verse 17, he says, He is the spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be with you. He's talking to his disciples again. There's this advocate that he's going to promise, this helper that's going to be with you. And he's saying the world can't receive him. Because the world isn't looking for him and the world doesn't recognize him. Those people who haven't decided to follow Jesus, who don't know who what he is, don't agree with him, they don't know, they don't recognize, they don't receive the Holy Spirit. Now I know that a lot of us here may come from different Christian backgrounds, different faith backgrounds. But I'm wondering, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you recognized the Holy Spirit? Are you looking for the Holy Spirit? If the spirit of the advocate is just as important to Jesus when it comes to listening and obeying his rules, are we even looking for him? Is this the first time that we've heard about him? My hope is that as a result of today, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in him, that you would start looking for the Holy Spirit, that you would start receiving what the Holy Spirit has for you, that you would start recognizing the Holy Spirit in your life. Now again, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard anything about the Holy Spirit and you're like, Andy, how am I supposed to do that? I have good news for you. Jesus gives you the answer in the next verse. He says there, but you know him because he lives with you and later will be in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you already have the Holy Spirit in you. If you have a follower of Jesus, he is already with you. All we have to do is expand ourselves, expand our understanding so that now we are actually looking for him. Now we are actually uh, receiving what he has for us. Now we are actually recognizing what he looks in our lives. We need to be informed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you want to love Jesus and obey his commands, we need to be informed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now as I'm uh, preparing this message, I'm reading through verses 15 to 31 and I get to the last two verses and it's something that haunted me. It's like a holy ghost haunting. (laughs) It's something that has kind of plagued me and I'm I'm still trying to wrap my mind about what it means and how do I understand this particular passage. But let me read it for you. Uh, Verse 30 and 31. Jesus again, the ending of his talk with his disciples. I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the father requires of me, so that the world would know that I love the Father. The ruler of this world approaches, he has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me, so that the world will know that I love the Father. He's saying that. The devil, Satan, is coming in Judas and possession, whatever that looks like. He's coming here, and there's a bunch of stuff that's about to happen. We know what's going to happen. He's about to be arrested. He's about to go on trial. He's about to be tortured, and he's about to be crucified, executed. And he's looking and saying, this is about to happen. This is coming, but it's okay because it's going to show the world how much I love the Father. Wait, what? The enemy of the world, Satan, is coming, and that's a good thing? Trials and difficulties are coming, and that's a good thing? This idea of being tortured and executed, that's a good thing? Because it shows the world that I love the Father. Is it possible that the difficulties in your life are a means by which to show the world that you're obedient and that you love God? The trials, the hardships, the things you didn't expect. Is it possible that God can use those things to show how much you love the Father? It's possible to reframe the difficult things in our life. So, I'm on this bridge. I'm overlooking this river. I got a coffee in my hand, outskirts of Montreal, with thinking about my future and my life. And the reason why I'm there is because we're at this conference. It's five days. and. Before the last day, they say, hey, you know what you need to do? Uh, before you come back tomorrow and get your results, what I want you to do is go find a, a space and just, just go and listen to God. Nothing specific, just go and listen to God. So I go. And that's how I found myself on this bridge overlooking this river in the outskirts of Montreal, coffee in my hand, contemplating my life and my future. And the Lord speaks to me. And it's something profound, and it's, it's, and it's incredible. And it changes my perspective perspective of what uh, success is looks like now to give you some context of what jesus is saying here in this passage uh, the disciples they were just ushered into jerusalem with all the fanfare you know hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord they're putting palm branches everywhere it's this grand entrance of jesus into jerusalem and they're now at the dinner with him this last supper we just celebrated communion here which is the holy sacrament based on what we're reading here in scripture but to them it wasn't the last supper for them, they had just been ushered into this Jerusalem. Everything was going great. Everything was awesome, and they're looking forward to great things. And for three chapters, Jesus is trying to say, hey, you know what? It's not going to work out. Hey, there's going to be all these difficult things coming. And the reason why Jesus is doing it is because Jesus is trying to give them hope. He understands what's coming for himself, the arrest, the torture, and the death. He understands what's going to happen to him after they die. They're going to lose their faith. They're not going to know what's going to They're going to be lost. He even understands what's going to happen to them after they receive the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and after they go out and they spread the gospel and change the world. He knows that in the end, almost all of them are going to die. They're going to be murdered. They're going to be martyred through spears and stoning and crucifixion. They're all going to die. And what he's doing here in this passage, he's trying to give them a new definition of what success looks like. We think success is happily ever after, but he's saying success can look like something else. He's trying to redefine for them that success means obedience to Jesus, rooted in love, that is informed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason why this is so profound for me is because later on, after I was on the the bridge overlooking the river, I went back to the rest of the conference, and we got our results of what was going to happen next for us. And there were 10 people who were part of that conference. Uh, Eight of them got um, moved on to the next stage. Two of them didn't. Those two people were Christine and myself. We didn't get the success we were looking for. We didn't get the happily ever after. And it was devastating. We had put all of our hope in saying that we're going to listen to God and this is where he's leading us and we're going there at the cost of ourselves and the sacrifice for ourselves to get there for a week and the cost and everything. And we thought that this was going to lead to something else, but it didn't. And for the next two months, we were kind of lost, questioning, do we really know how to hear God? Is this really the path that he's calling us to? And it, it caused us to question everything. But the thing that redefined it for me was that while I was on that bridge, overlooking that river, on the outskirts of Montreal, coughing my hand, contemplating my life and my future, what the Spirit told me there changed my life forever. And this is what he said. He said, you have done everything that I've asked of you. And I am so proud of you. He says, I've done everything that you've asked of you. And I am so proud of you. And he told me this before I got my results. He told me this before I would tailspin for the next couple of months. He told me this ahead of time to give me hope. He told me this to help me to redefine what success looks like. Success doesn't look like how I think it looks like, it does not look like happily ever after. Success is just being obedient to Christ, rooted in love, being informed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what success is. That's funny because after this moment here, um, Jesus has a different idea of what success looks like. And uh, my wife and I came up with the phrase, Happily Ever After, after. Because sometimes our Happily Ever After doesn't look the same way. And our my Happily Ever After, after is actually me standing on this stage preaching to you. Because we went home and I was in turmoil for two months. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I get this invitation. And I ended up going out for coffee with this short little American dude, right? <laughs> For like 45 minutes, we're having a chat and conversation, and it ends up with, at the end, him offering me two jobs. (laughs) I took one of them, but I ended up doing both of them anyways. (laughs) I think he won that deal, whatever, right? Sometimes success doesn't look like what we expect it to look like. And as the band, uh, worship band, comes up and continues our worship here today, I want to just get back to the synopsis. My goal is, after we examine this scripture, that we would realize we need to redefine our success. It's not based on winning. It's not based on happily ever after. It's not even based on the outcomes that we're looking for. Spiritual success for us is simply obeying Jesus, being rooted in love, informed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that You don't leave us, but you sent us this spirit, this advocate to teach us that we can learn from and remind us of everything that Jesus said. Thank you for this redefinition that you've given us, this simple idea of Uh loving you and obeying your commands through the power of the Holy Spirit. This redefinition, Father, is something that we can build our life on. This idea of being beaten to you, rooted in love, informed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to pray for everyone today here as we leave here, as we continue to worship, that we would accept that redefinition, that it would change us from the inside out, that we would build our life on that, and that as we leave here today, we would go and be successful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.